is found in your copy of God's Word, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This morning we'll be reading together verses 15 through 29. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, Solomon writes, In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. and Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Happy New Year. And we come in the first sermon of 2014 to Solomon's New Year's resolution. Even though he didn't technically write these down and it's not a New Year's resolution in the typical sense in which we think it and that he made a resolve in the new year to be different, he would add to our list of New Year's resolutions one more. And it is a very odd one to add. The one that he would add this morning if he were speaking to us is to make 2014 a year where you are not too righteous. 
Now, that sounds very strange to us because we know our Bibles well. We know that the Bible commands us to pursue righteousness. Jesus, in fact, said in Matthew 5, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we know the Bible says things like, be holy for I am holy. We also know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And that what one part of the Bible teaches, another part of the Bible is not teaching in contradiction, even though at first it may sound to our ears like it is. But once we dive in here to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're going to see, in fact, that Solomon is not teaching that we ought not to pursue righteousness, but he is teaching that we ought not to be excessively righteous. And there is a difference between those two things. So I want to start off this morning by defining what I think Paul means by not being too righteous. He uses those words in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 16, where he says, do not or be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. What does he mean by that? Well, from my study this week, there are no less than four interpretations of what this perhaps might mean. And uh, it will come as no surprise to you that my view is the fourth one that I'm going to describe. But let me give you the other three, and then I'll talk about the fourth one. First one says that this phrase, do not be too righteous or do not be excessively righteous, is talking about a semi sort of righteousness. That is a righteousness that avoids extremes. Don't be overly righteous then would mean don't take the middle road between vice and virtue. Solomon wants us to sin a little bit. He wants us to have a life of moderation. He doesn't want us to be overzealous or too stupid. But that can't possibly be what he means because in the very next verse, he tells us to not be wicked. So he doesn't have in mind this sort of middle path between righteousness and wickedness. In fact, the whole point of this book or one of the points is that we should fear God. And in the last verse of the book, he encourages us to fear God and keep his commandments. So he's obviously not saying, go ahead and sin a little bit. A second view is the self-righteousness view. Not semi-righteous, but self-righteous. In this view, Solomon would say, don't, instead, what, what is, he's literally saying is, don't be self-righteous. What he means by don't be overly righteous is don't be self-righteous. Righteous, But I have a problem with that too. And you, you should have a problem with that because verse 15 doesn't make sense if we see self-righteousness that way. Let me read it for you as if self-righteousness is the view. And you can look down at verse 15 if you have your Bible in front of you. Verse 15, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a self-righteous man who perishes in his self-righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Well, self-righteousness doesn't make any sense there. A self-righteous man who perishes in his self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is a form of wickedness. And here he's comparing righteousness with wickedness. So he can't be saying self-righteous, don't be self-righteous, because it wouldn't make sense of verse 15. The third view is simplistic righteous. A simplistic righteous view. 
This understands the term righteousness to be real righteousness. It's really genuine righteousness. It's not semi-righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. It's real righteousness. But the righteousness that's being described is excessive, literally righteous over much. Only in the sense that an Old Testament believer might simplistically expect God to honor his righteousness with immediate blessing. So it's sort of this simple view of righteousness that if I'm righteous, God will bless me. And that's certainly, I think, in part what's going on here. In verse 15, Solomon describes a situation where a genuinely righteous person receives what the wicked should get. And the wicked person receives what the righteous person should get. The point of verse 16 then could be explained like this. Don't be simplistically righteous, naive, to think that God will reward you with immediate blessing because of your righteous living. Or with the expectation of immediate reward. Why cause yourself to be astonished that God did not honor your righteous living with immediate blessing? So that would be a simplistic view of righteousness. It would be what we would categorically call traditional wisdom. The righteous get treated righteously by God or get treated rightly by God from their perspective. And the wicked receive punishment. While I think that is certainly a part of what's going on, I don't think it's the whole picture. And this is why I take what's called a super righteous view. Bearing in mind that he's using the term righteousness in the sense of being right in one's own mind or one's own cause, his counsel then is warning against the obsession of always being proven right. It means to be too wise to seek to go outside what God has revealed and try to make sense of everything without humbly accepting our limitations. Do not then be super righteous. That is, for no matter how righteous we become, we can never force God to prolong our lives by our righteousness. We can't control him by working harder at right living. It's not a worthwhile goal to strive toward exaggerated righteousness in an effort to be the wisest person on earth. At the same time, don't give up hope and live like a fool because God's principles still operate and we open ourselves up to what Solomon calls premature death. Why would you destroy yourself by being a fool? So in other words, when he says, don't be overly righteous, let me sum it up because I know we've covered a lot of different ground here. Let me, let me just sum this up. I think what Solomon is teaching when he says, do not be too righteous, do not be excessively righteous, be not overly righteous, is don't lead or live an overly scrupulous, thorough, painstaking, meticulous, particular, detailed, conscientious, burdensome life of righteousness. This will undermine your ability to enjoy your life as a gift of God. That's what he's talking about. Do not be super righteous. Now, the question then becomes, what does that mean and what does that look like? I mean, it's fine to define it. But what does it look like in practice? How do we know whether we are behaving in the way that Solomon doesn't want us to behave? 
whether we're behaving unwisely, whether we're behaving overly righteously. And there are five things in this text. I believe this is the driving theme of the passage, carrying us all the way through to verse 29. There are five signs of being overly righteous that are revealed in this text. And I want to walk us through those five. And so measure yourself against this criteria of the Bible and assess whether or not you are behaving or I am behaving in an overly righteous way that undermines our ability to enjoy life as the gift of God. First one, the overly righteous expect God to always treat them well. The overly righteous expect God to always treat them well. Well, verses 15 through 18. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? You see the little little bit of cynicism that's sleep, sneaking in here. Overly righteous people will tend to expect God... To give them a perfect or at least a pleasant life. Since God has promised long life to the righteous, and in general, that's a biblical principle that is true, we might be tempted then to think that those who died young were not righteous enough, or that those who are receiving adversity are not being righteous enough, or God would bless them. If they were more righteous, they wouldn't be receiving adversity. Therefore, they may have this, this idea that they themselves should be more righteous if they're going to prolong their life. They look at the wicked and they see the wicked prospering and they see the righteous being killed early and they recognize that shouldn't be the case. So the problem then must be that the righteous aren't righteous enough. And that is not true. Solomon says it's not true in the previous two verses. Look at those. Chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? God makes crooked things. God makes crooked world. Things that aren't aligned like they should be. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. So Solomon has this idea. There's a day of prosperity. There's a day in which we should rejoice and be joyful. There's also a day of adversity in which trouble comes. Painful circumstances enter into life. Difficulty happens. And it's as much from the hand of God as the day of prosperity. Contra everything we hear on television sometimes. So in light of verse 14, the day of adversity and prosperity, Solomon seems to be warning us against overreacting to the possibility of the day of adversity and think that by our moral performance, we can manipulate God into avoiding it. Don't we think that way? Sometimes. I know I do. In my less biblical moments. I think I can control God with my behavior. That if I'm righteous enough, God won't send any trials my way. 
And that's, in fact, a sign of being overly righteous. Overly righteous. But at the same time, Solomon says, that doesn't mean you should abandon righteousness and go be a fool. Verse 17. Because that would be our conclusion, right? He's anticipating what the way we might think. And so in verse 17, he says, don't be overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So he's saying just because the righteous will receive trials and difficulties doesn't mean that being wicked is any better and is going to cause you to avoid trials. In fact, you're going to walk into more. It's dangerous to be overly wicked. His language is, why would you die before your time? So fatalism is not the answer here. So what is the answer? Verse 18. It's good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both. So he says, take hold of this. Don't try to be super righteous. But also, because that's impossible, because we're sinners, as we'll see. But also, don't let go of the other. That is, don't choose to be very wicked, for that would be to be a fool. Hold on to both. The one who fears God will come out with both. That, that is, they're not going to be super righteous and think that they deserve a certain treatment from the hand of God because of their behavior, but neither are they going to ban themselves to wickedness. The one who fears God will come out with both of them. That is, they won't abandon themselves to this super righteousness, and they won't abandon themselves to overly wickedness because they fear God. And the only people who will come out like that are ones that fear God. What does it mean to fear God? To love him supremely. To take each day as a gift from his hand. To love him for his sake. Not, how he, not, not regarding our perceived, his perceived treatment of us. But to love him for his sake. The on, only ones who will come out of a world that is crooked and broken and doesn't make sense. Where a godly young man like Sean Golly is in a car accident. And a wicked man might be in a similar situation and get away scot-free. The only way that that makes sense to us is if we fear God. Is if we love him supremely. Is if we know that he has ordained the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. So, brothers and sisters, our reasons for pursuing a righteous life really matter, don't they? Are you living a righteous life to insulate you from difficulty? If that's the case, you're not serving God. You're serving yourself and using religion and morality to protect you. That's for your sake, and that's wicked. An overly righteous life will not ins- I should say, a truly righteous life will not insulate us from the painful difficulties of life. But an overly righteous life will hinder us from enjoying our present life as the gift of God. You can often spot an overly righteous person by the degree of their unhappiness. So we're not to drop anchor in a life of wickedness, 
either. But the keys to fear God, to love him supremely for his sake, to take each day as from his hand and all that it brings by way of prosperity and adversity. You know, I was reminded of this as I was working on this sermon this week at my computer in my kitchen earlier in the week. Um, my son comes up to me and it's really as I'm working on this point that I get this illustration, which is just God's kindness to me and my little son. But he, he loves Ninja Turtles big time into Ninja Turtles. And um, he got all four of them for Christmas. Michelangelo, Leonardo, Donatello. Who am I missing? Raphael. Ninja Turtle fans in the house representing Well, he lost Raphael like within like two days. I mean, gone. And then he misplaced Michelangelo and Leonardo. And he comes up, he comes up to me while I'm working on the sermon. He's like, daddy, have you seen Michelangelo, Leonardo? I said, no, son. You've asked me before. I haven't seen it. And I'm like, man, that's a real bummer, isn't it, buddy? Like you just got them a couple days ago and you've already lost three of them. And he goes, Daddy, it's okay. I still got got Donatello. And I thought, there's a kid. Now, I know you can make all sort of qualification, but there's a kid who just has enjoyed life as a gift and is just receiving what what he's gotten is grateful for it. That's exactly what Solomon is driving us toward. You could get all bent out of shape about the, and he could all bent out of shape about the three Ninja Turtles he doesn't have, but they're not a complete set. What am I going to do? Who's he going to play with? He's all by himself, but he just rejoiced and said, it's okay, daddy. I still got one. And that's not being overly righteous. All right, a second sign of being overly righteous is you expect, or the overly righteous person expects to not struggle with sin. To not struggle with sin. Verses 19 and 20. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man. More than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now it sounds like there's no connection between those two verses, but there is, and it's a strong connection. Verse 19. We love that verse. Wisdom gives strength to the wise. You want to be strong in life? Be wise. Wisdom will make you stronger than 10 rulers who are in a city. A city's strong if it's got one strong ruler. But if it's got 10 strong rulers, it's a really strong city. And wisdom will make you stronger than that. And that's true. But just because you're wise doesn't mean you're not going to sin. See, overly righteous people think that sin is an intellectual problem. That if we can just get wisdom and we can learn the right principles and we can learn the right way of life and someone will give us this tip and that tip and that tip and that tip and we go do it, we won't struggle with sin. Baloney! Which is why so much preaching, and I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but practical-oriented preaching, and I love practical-oriented preaching, and I hope that's what I'm doing right now. 
but that just says, here's the standard and here's 10 tips to keep it is setting you up for failure and cultivating in you over righteousness. Why would we do that? That doesn't mean we don't give principles and it doesn't mean we don't give application and it doesn't mean we don't spell out what it looks like. It just means we don't hold up the standard and say, okay, now pursue it. So what Solomon's doing here is he's saying, okay, wisdom, it gives us strength, stronger than ruler of 10 cities, but surely there's not a righteous person on earth who does good and never sins. See, even a strong and righteous man or woman is still a sinner. Ample evidence of that this week, right, brothers and sisters? Exhibit A, B, C, D. We could just start naming them. And, and I'm sitting in the midst of a lot of wise people. Wiser than their pastor in some cases. In most cases, I might say. People who've lived the Christian life a long time, walked with Jesus, suffered, walked with him in great trial and difficulty, come out incredibly wise. Some of you are absolutely golden. And yet you still struggle with sin. Even the righteous sin. And they can't regularly do good without a good bit of sin there too. But see, overly righteous, the overly righteous mindset can't tolerate that. It's a wisdom problem. I need to get more wisdom. Need to get more wisdom. Need to get more wisdom. Solomon's saying, nope, you can get all the wisdom that you need. That doesn't mean you don't abandon pursuing wisdom. He's already said that. Don't be a fool. But don't think that getting wisdom is going to fix your sin problem. It's not going to fix it. You'll never be perfect enough, no matter how wise and righteous we become. And this leads us into some counsel about how we should wisely interact with other sinners, doesn't it? Which brings us to the next two verses. So a one sign of the overly righteous is they expect God to always treat them well. Second sign of the overly righteous is they don't expect to struggle with sin. A third sign of the overly righteous is that they are heavily critical of other people. Excessively critical of other people. See if you don't see it for yourself. Verse 21 and 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. Boy, that's a good bit of wisdom. Lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. See, the imperfect nature of man means that we must avoid a hypercritical attitude toward others. If there's surely a righteous man on earth who sometimes sins, then we need to avoid being hypercritical toward other people. People who are committed to a rigorous, moralistic approach to life can often be very hard and critical of others. Exhibit A, elder brother in this parable of the prodigal son, right? Boy, really, really hard to love and forgive and be gracious toward his younger brother and his father especially because he'd done everything right and then some. And his father was not treating him the way he perceived he should be treated based upon his right record of righteousness and obedience. And so Solomon's counsel is don't be very hard and critical of others. 
Don't be nitpicky and crusty and fault finding. But also don't pay too much attention to what other people say about you. And don't take verbal sins against you too seriously because we're all sinners. We've done the same thing to others. So far from actually protecting us from relational difficulty like this, our over-righteousness can actually serve to inhibit and hurt relationships. So we see here Solomon saying, look, don't take to heart all the things that people say. Why does he say that? Because overly righteous people have a hard time doing that. Everything is offensive to them. Everything. This problem, that problem, that problem, that problem, this undone, that undone. Problems. What'd they say? What'd they say? Oh, no, they didn't. Taking to heart everything that people say. It crushes you. Because your reputation matters a lot, doesn't it? Your righteousness matters a lot. Not Jesus' righteousness for you, but yours. And this oversensitivity to what people say, Solomon is plainly saying, don't do that. Don't do that. And he gives the motivation, doesn't he? You've done it to others. Haven't we? We've all done it. We've cursed others and then been offended when people say something about us. And yet we do the very same things. So the important principle here is the principle of humility, isn't it? It's recognizing that we have to always look to our own heart first and cut some slack to our fellow sinners. Brothers and sisters, sooner or later, we are bound to overhear somebody say something about us that may be unkind or untrue. And I would argue, especially in the church. And usually our first reaction will be to get angry. But what we ought to do instead is let it go. We ought to let it go. If we're wise, we'll be careful not to take too much interest in what other people say about us. But if we're overly righteous, we won't be able to resist. So that's a third sign of being overly righteous is taking personal offense to the words that people say. You know, one of the, one of the things I had to learn the hard way being a teacher my first couple of years in education was everything that was said or that I heard I took personally. I took, and it, it created very hard teaching for me to do. And it was hard to have relationships with uh, kids and it was hard to, to teach in such a way as to not treat them with grace. It was hard to do that. And then just a wise older teacher about my second year in just said, look, Mark, you can't take that stuff to heart. You really can't. And um, it, was, it was wise. And, and uh, it's gone a lot better since then. I'm not saying it's not a struggle. There's not a righteous man on earth who does it good and never sins, right? Just preach that. But still, 
It helps. So just realize you're going to hear some stuff. Don't take it to heart. Remember, you yourself have done it many times. So it's that posture of humility, plank spec deal. Remember in the plank in your own eye so that you can do well to handle the speck in your brother's life. All right. Fourth one, fourth sign of being overly righteous is not being able to accept our limitations. Not being able to accept our limitations, verses 23 to 25. He says, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and very deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Notice his pursuit in verse 25, how much it's marked by tenacity and vigor. He says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. Doesn't the Proverbs command us to do that? Proverbs 2, right? Search for her as though for hidden gold. Go after wisdom. Pursue wisdom. Amen. Solomon would agree with that. But not without accepting your limitations. See, it matters. The posture here is the huge thing. The, 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 disposition, the disposition of the heart in the pursuit of wisdom matters. It's not just get be wise. It's realize that when you are wise, you're not as wise as you'll as you could be. And you're not as wise as you'll even be or ever be because there's limits to what we can know. You notice the result, right? In verses 23 and 24, he's left lacking. He said, I'll be wise, but it's far from me. Verse 23, verse 24, it was far off. It was deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So he went after this pursuit of wisdom and it ended up not giving him all the answers. See, overly righteous people need all the answers. We need all the answers. And we have a hard time accepting intellectual limitations on what we can know. But see, righteous people who are humble don't have a problem with that. We can accept our limitations. Or I should say we have a problem with it maybe in our struggles. But as a disposition of our life and heart, we're okay with that. We'll accept our limitations. See, because brothers and sisters, wisdom even ultimately escapes the wise. God has a divinely designed restriction so that we can only know so much. The more I learn and grow as a Christian, the more I realize how little I know. And it's really humbling. In fact, knowing the limits of wisdom is what it means to be wise. Fifthly and finally, the overly wise believe they can fix themselves. The overly wise, the overly righteous believe they can fix themselves. Verse 26 through 29. Start with verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God and escapes her escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, why this talk about a woman all of a sudden? <laughs> I mean, it just totally, it, 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 
it, it was confusing for a large part of my week. It's what's going, why, what are you bringing this up for? I mean, you're talking about wisdom and now all of a sudden talking about a relationship with a woman, but you remember Solomon's already been through this back in chapter two in Ecclesiastes. We learned that he sought to know many women. He had a harem and a vast number of physical relationships with women. And nothing has the potential to sour life like a bad relationship. And Paul, or not Paul, Solomon sees it here. Says, I find something more bitter than death. Now, the key here to understand this is that ultimately this is not what, what, what the, he, what the main point of this is not his relationship with this, with women. He's using it as an illustration of a greater reality. Let me show you what that is. Look at verse 27. Behold, this is what I found. So he examined this, these relationships that he had had with these women and how it was snares and nets and fetters, and he was taken by it. But he says, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. See, it's still a pursuit of wisdom. This relationship and understanding why it went bad and how it went bad is a pursuit of wisdom for him. He's using it as an illustration. He says, which my soul, verse 28, has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Trying to figure out the scheme of things, the way things work, why they work the way they do. It says, one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among these I've not found. See, this alone I have found. All right, so he's pursued this relationship. He said, one man among a thousand I've found to be wise, but I haven't found any women to be wise. That's funny. <laughs> but lest we throw Solomon under the bus as a chauvinist here, guys, remember, he's saying one-tenth of one percent he's found with the men. Right? You see that in verse 28. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. So he said, I've pursued wisdom. I've pursued wisdom myself, and I've pursued wisdom through relationship, trying to figure out the way things are and why they work the way, I, way I've got. And here's all the things I've not found. Verse 28, he said, I've not found one wise man. I haven't found very much wisdom when I've pursued these relationships. Wisdom is a rare commodity. But he says, here's what I have found. Verse 29, see this alone I found. And here's his big point. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And that's why I say the overly righteous have a tendency to believe that they can fix life themselves. You see what Solomon was doing here. He was trying to figure out wisdom horizontally. He was pursuing it through relationship and trying to find that. How many of you have pursued it through relationship and that's come up bankrupt too? Solomon says, I did too. And I found that it was empty and a net and a snare. 
And he says, while I haven't figured that out, I have figured this out. God made people upright and they have sought out many schemes. In other words, men are devious with women and women are devious with men and we're all devious with God. And our culture thinks that we can fix things with relationships. That we can fix our internal brokenness by getting next to another person with profound internal brokenness. And somehow it's going to come out not broken. See, our culture sees our problems as outside of us and our solution as being within us. But the Bible says no. Our solution is is not inside of us. Our problem is inside of us and our solution is outside of us. See, Solomon is saying that a life obsessed with righteousness blinds us to our own sinfulness. Isn't that a key theme that runs straight throughout this text? It blinds us to the sinfulness of others. It blinds us to our own sin. We can never be righteous enough. The pursuit of righteousness, wisdom, morality is frustrating. In fact, the more we try to be righteous apart from God, the further we distance ourselves from him. Solomon is teaching us that it matters how we view ourselves, that we need to view ourselves as broken spiritually, as broken intellectually, as broken relationally, as broken morally, and as broken In a world that is broken. And when we get that. That's when we turn to God. Isn't that when you turn to Jesus? World's broken. I'm broken. People are broken. Life is broken. Jesus can fix it. So we must. We dare not. Attempt to be righteous. Apart from Jesus. In fact, Jesus didn't come for those kind of people. I did not come to call the righteous, the overly righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus came to provide us with a righteousness that we could never achieve on our own. And I preached about it a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to rehash it completely But I do want us to turn in conclusion, and I'm going to wrap up in just a couple of minutes, to Romans chapter 10. And we're going to conclude by looking at a different righteousness than the one we ourselves create. Romans chapter 10, and verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is his unbelieving Jewish friends, is that they may be saved. For I hear them, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul is talking to a group of overly righteous people. He's talking to a group of people 
who are self-righteous. In addition to a lot of overly righteous tendencies. And he says, I'll give them credit for this. They are zealous for God, but it's an ignorant zeal. It's a zeal that they believe that by doing what they are doing, that God will accept, forgive, restore, heal, save them. They are seeking in the language of verse three to establish a righteousness of their own. And Paul says they're ignorant of God's righteousness, meaning the righteousness that he is willing to give us as a gift. And that righteousness is found in verse four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is for righteousness. Christ is for righteousness. Christ is for righteousness to everyone who believes. And brothers and sisters, that is the cure for over-righteousness. It's when Christ and Christ as our righteousness matters to us more than anything else. That that is the functional driver of our lives. When Christ is our righteousness, our internal brokenness does not cripple us. And the internal brokenness and the external brokenness of our relationships and our churches and our world does not crush us. No, contrary, when we are resting in Christ's righteousness, we can, we can know that our internal brokenness And our sin has been satisfied, has been taken care of, and God does not hold it against us because we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. We're willing to accept our intellectual limitations. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to know anything because we know the one who does. And we know his heart for us. And we know his disposition toward us. So we don't have to figure it out. We entrust ourselves to the one who is and who does have it all in his hands both the day of adversity and the day of prosperity. We're not crushed by our sinful disobedience. We recognize that even the righteous sin and we pick ourselves up and we rise again and we confess our sins and we receive fresh forgiveness and restored fellowship with our savior. We don't carry around this load of crippling guilt. And when other people sin against us, it doesn't cause us to react in crazy ways. We can absorb it because we ourselves know we've done the very same thing and we're resting in the righteousness of Christ. And the greatest word that somebody else can pronounce over us is does nothing. If God is for you, who can be against you? What does it matter who, what they said? See, you're a rock and you're unexplainable to the world. And we need a church filled with people like that who date adverse days come prosperous days come. I'm a rock because Jesus is my rock. Jesus is my righteousness. I'm not surprised by my sin. I'm not surprised by the sin of others. I'm surprised I don't sin more and other people don't sin against me more. It's amazing. And that disposition of humility and brokenness for over your own sin will make you an incredibly wise and righteous person. Incredibly wise and righteous. And it's the exact kind of righteousness that God desires and is pleased with. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you and recognize 
that all of this text absolutely lays us all flat in various ways because we're all sinners. Even those of us, the most of us, the majority of us who are your beloved adopted children. Forgiven by you, no condemnation pronounced over our lives. Nevertheless, we struggle. We struggle, Lord. We struggle with our limitations of what we can fix and what we can do. We struggle with our limitations intellectually. We struggle with our own sin. We struggle with the sins of others. We struggle with the crookedness of our world. And yet, because of this passage and because of your word, we don't have to struggle as much as we think. Fill us with your peace that passes all understanding and guard our hearts and minds according to your word in Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.